The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Guys, um, so if you got your Bibles, crack them open. Mark chapter 15. Um, yeah, we are just really close to finishing Mark, um, which is crazy. Uh, it's been awesome being able to just look at this verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Um, we are pretty much ready to hit the crucifixion. We've got a little bit more to talk about tonight before we start to get into the actual crucifixion itself. Um, but tonight we're going to look a bit, little bit more at the trial of Jesus, um, and it should be good. So I'm going to pray, uh, and then we'll, we'll get started. So God, I, I just really need your help tonight, Lord. I really need you to speak through me, Father. I, I really don't have anything worth saying. I don't have anything that anyone is interested about hearing. Um, the only thing that anyone here is going to benefit anything from is, is the, the things that you will say through me, God. So I pray that I would just be uh, an open door, an open mouthpiece for you, God, to prophetically speak directly to your people, in a way that's life-changing, life-giving, that brings freedom, that breaks chains, that brings light into dark places in people's hearts. God, I, I know that there's people hurting in here tonight, that there's people that, that could probably burst into tears. Lord, um, if I were to ask them how they're doing, um, there's people in here that, Lord, are tired, that are struggling, um, in all kinds of different emotional states, Lord, and I know that, Jesus, you are the answer to every person's issue in here. So I just pray, Father, that you would speak about your Son through the Holy Spirit tonight, and that we would receive it, and that we would be made free through it. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, my wife and I, we've been like in this crazy, sick season. You guys, any, anyone in here been in the sick season? I just feel like everyone's sick all the time, and we just get each other sick all the time. It's a nonstop. And so, for like three weeks, one of us, myself or my wife or my daughter, has been sick, which means that we've been inside a lot, okay? So, like, when weekends come around, we don't get to go do fun things because we're stuck inside trying to get better. And what we've been doing, oh, that's really cool. Uh, Sorry. What we've been doing, <laughs> something shiny. Uh, what we've been doing is actually, you've been watching a lot of like, like TV, you know, which, which is just mind rotting. But we haven't been watching movies or television shows. We actually, we've been really in this like documentary kick. Because like documentaries. Because I love documentaries because I love to learn stuff. You know what I mean? I love to like, like feel like I just spent an hour actually enhancing my brain instead of just rotting it away. Um, so we've been watching this do- these documentaries called Frontline. Have you guys are like Frontline? I think the PBS makes them. They're pretty cool. Um, the thing about Frontline though is it's like it's like all the details. You know what I mean? It's like really, um, it's kind of like uh, you walk away feeling like you learned something, but you also kind of walk away feeling kind of depressed. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like we watched one about uh, about AIDS last night. It was like really interesting, but I'm like, oh, it's so depressing, you know? And, th- and we watched another one about like like prison and, and just like, I'm like, this is so crazy. But what, the reason why it's depressing is because you're kind of able for a moment to see into a different uh, part of the world and see how bad the world is and see how much hurt there is and how much people struggle. And it's kind of depressing, you know? Um, there's not a lot of hope in, in those things, and they don't really end the documentaries on a happy note. Um, now, tonight, what we're going to look at kind of comes off as depressing. It kind of comes off as discouraging a little bit. It's kind of like, man, this is just a bummer that people are this way, and that this is how Jesus was treated, and that this is what they did with the Savior, Jesus Christ. But can I just tell you that there's hope here? And we're going to extract that hope. There's hope in this text. There's joy to be found here. There's freedom to be found here. And I really want 
with you to dive in, to unpack it, and to see how there's hope. It's not just like a documentary that says, this is how it is, it's a bummer, see you later. No, this is how it is, and there's an answer. There's a way out. There's hope. Okay, you guys ready to get started? So, we have been, just a little bit of background, um, Jesus has been arrested, okay? If you remember, Jesus had his last supper with his disciples. He sat down and, and shared with them the bread and the cup, and then he, he told them that Judas was gonna betray him, and he said, Judas, go ahead, go do your thing. Judas leaves, they head out, it's nighttime, they go to the Garden of Gethsemane, a little garden just outside of Jerusalem, um, to sort of regroup and spend some time in prayer. Well, Jesus spends time in prayer. His disciples end up taking a nap, right, snoozing. Um, Jesus is going through some of the worst emotional uh, states that he's ever been in. He's literally sweating drops of blood because he's so fearful of what's about to happen on the cross. Um, Meanwhile, his disciples are sleeping. He comes and wakes them up and says, can you guys just not pray with me? Can you not stay awake for a little bit? Well, I'm going through this because Jesus knows something's about to happen, okay? And then just a few minutes later, in the middle of the night, they see the torch is coming. Judas had betrayed him into the hands of um, the Sanhedrin, into the religious leaders. He knew where they would be. So here comes Judas and this mob of literally probably close to a thousand people, um, some temple guards, some Roman guards. They come in and they arrest Jesus, okay? Remember, Peter pulls his sword out hacks off Malchus's ear, the servant of uh, Caiaphas, um, that whole kind of story. So they lead Jesus off to his first section of the trial. And we, this is all review. We've looked at this before. They take him to the house of Caiaphas. Now Caiaphas was the high priest at that time. Um, they take it to his house. It's the middle of the night. It's pitch black. And they begin to try Jesus. They begin to put him on trial, asking him questions. Um, they declare that he is guilty, and then they begin to beat him and mock him. They put something over his face and begin to punch him and say, um, prophesy, tell us who's punching you. So basically mocking, um, mocking him in every way possible. Then we come to the second part of Jesus' trial, which is what we're going to look at tonight. And that's concerning a different character, okay? We've met sort of the religious leaders, and now we're going to meet a new character tonight, and his name is Pontius Pilate. Okay, what a name. My name's Pontius. Nice to meet you. Um, Horrible. Pontius Pilate. We'll just call him Pilate for for simplicity's sake. So, now Pontius Pilate, let me explain a little bit of who he is and kind of what he's doing in this story. Um, You have to understand, and and some of you guys probably already get this, some of you maybe don't, so I'm not going to take it for granted. It took me a long time to understand this simply, but Israel in the first century, okay, 2,000 years ago, is not ruling itself, Okay. They have, yes, kings. They have King Herod. Yes, they have their, their priestly line, and they have people that, that are governing them. But ultimately, Israel, just like most of the ancient world in the first century, is ruled by Rome. Rome is uh, almost a wor- world-ruling empire that has taken over most of the ancient world. And Israel and Palestine and that area of Judea is all being ruled by Rome. Okay? So what Rome would do is they would place someone to govern that area that would basically be um, the uh, person in charge of that for Caesar, in this case, uh, Caesar Tiberius. So Pilate was the guy that Caesar Tiberius commissioned or sent to be the governor of this land. Okay, so he's a big deal. He's the boss. So even Herod, even the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, they look to Pilate because Rome is in control of Israel at that time. So it's very important to understand that there's, there's, there's tension there. There's two 
different people groups in Israel at this time. There's the Romans, the guards, the soldiers that are trying to continue to um, hold that militarily. And then there's Israel, the people that actually live there. So you can imagine some of the tension that you would feel um, if someone came in and took over our country and usurped their power, their foreign government over us, and then they sent a governor over to actually um, to be in charge of our country. So even though, say, Obama was still our president, he had to answer to this governor of whoever uh, this place was that took over. That would be really tough, and you can imagine there would be some, some tension there, right? So Israel, the Romans, the Romans hate the Jews, the Jews hate the Romans, the Jews don't want them there, Romans probably don't want to be there. So it's, like a, it's just a really hostile situation. So that's who Pilate was. He's commissioned to be the governor over that land. Now, really quick, this is interesting. When we went to Israel, um, our tour guide, which interestingly enough wasn't even a Christian, but he said one of his favorite archaeological finds in Israel was actually a stone that on it said, well, I'll tell you what it is in a second. Um, I'll tell you now. Pontius Pilate. There was a stone that they found that said Pontius Pilate, the uh, governor or the, I don't remember the word, of Palestine or of Israel. Now, up until like about the 60s, it was actually kind of used to, uh, they, they used the fact that they didn't have a lot of history, um, solid history that Pilate even existed. They kind of used that to sort of pick at or poke at the Bible. And then in the 60s, they found this stone that had Pontius Pilate's name on it, which is really, really kind of interesting and a huge, huge deal for uh, the fact that the Bible is so true and so accurate. Now, Pilate, just to get a feel for kind of what he was like in the eyes of the Jews, of the people in Israel, there's a couple um, historical stories um, that uh, are helpful in that. One of them is that Pilate actually at one point decided that he was going to put statues of himself in Jerusalem. Okay, that's kind of what Romans did, right? They, they, they would uh, have someone chisel, you know, their bod out, and then they'd put it up um, somewhere. So that's what, that's what Pilate did. He had, he had them put statues. Now, if, if you know anything about the law of Jews, that flies in the face of everything they believe in. Um, you shouldn't build a carven image, right? So that, that just didn't fly with them. And the history actually says that they marched... 70 miles out to Pilate's house in Caesarea to protest at his house about these images. And they, they, they protested and protested, and finally, Pilate, being a pretty hard guy, okay, he wasn't as bad as Nero, but he wasn't a great guy, um, he actually said, okay, throw them in the arena and have them eaten. <laughs> and these Jews were so adamant that they actually said, okay, fine, if that's what you want to do, then let's go. And he was so impressed by them that he actually let them go, took the statues down. But you can just see through that story, there's tension there. Another one is that uh, Pilate, at one point, apparently decided he was going to take money out of the temple treasury and build an aqueduct to bring water into Jerusalem. Um, so taking money out of the temple treasury didn't sit very well with the Jews. Again, they protested him uh, hardcore. Uh, they hated him for that, uh, and that one didn't end as well. He actually ended up pretty much brutally slaying all of the protesters. So this was a tough guy. This was a rough guy, a guy that had power, wasn't afraid to use it, a guy that was going to make sure that things went the way that they were supposed to, um, and a guy that was pretty much hated by Israel. So politically, I say all that, not just to bore you, but I say all that to say that politically, Pilate is in a position where he doesn't really want to light a match, if you know what I mean. Jerusalem is a tinderbox, okay? You got millions, I've talked about this before, but millions of people coming to Jerusalem right now for the feast of Passover, 
And Passover itself is like the 4th of July for us. It's celebrating their independence from Egypt back when Moses was there. So you can imagine, again, if we were a country that was taken over by another country, they would beef up security on 4th of July because there'd be some drunk rednecks pulling out guns. I'm just saying. You know what I mean? So that's basically what's going on. It's like 4th of July when this is happening right here. It's Passover time. They're celebrating liberation from Egypt. They don't like Rome. They don't want him there. They don't like Pilate. They don't want him ruling over them. And Pilate is walking on eggshells, okay? He's trying to make sure that nothing happens that's going to cause a problem, going to cause an issue. It's tense. It's literally a tinderbox. So having said all that, look at verse 1. It says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes, and the whole council. Now, why is it morning time? Well, it's morning because the first half of this trial under the Sanhedrin was completely illegal, and it was completely at night. The Sanhedrin, they, they arrested Jesus at night. They took him to the house of Caiaphas at night. They tried him at night, which, by the way, it was completely against the Torah, the law. It said that trials were supposed to happen in the daytime. So they've trialed him illegally in secrecy at night, condemned him, convicted him. But guess what? Now it's morning time. They're going to take him to Pilate, because they can't actually legally execute him. Why? Because they're not given that privilege. Okay, they're not given the privilege of being able to execute someone for crimes. They have to go to Pilate, who's the governor, and have him actually do it, if they want to do it legally. So it's morning time. Uh, They bound Jesus, first one, and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. Verse two, and Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Now, let's talk about the question here. Pilate asks Jesus this question, are you the king of the Jews? Now, there's sort of kind of a mocking tone here when Pilate asks that. He's not actually saying that like he actually believes that Jesus is the king of the Jews. This is what they were mocking him and and, and saying that he was saying about himself. So he's saying, are you the king of the Jews? Is that who you are, Jesus? I mean, obviously, he doesn't think that he's a king. Um, And Jesus' answer is kind of brilliant. He sort of gives this vague or ambiguous type answer where he doesn't quite say that he is the king, but he also doesn't quite say that he isn't. <laughs> he says, whatever you say, man. <laughs> you, ever, you guys ever said that before? Like, someone asks you something and you really want to answer, like, hey, whatever you say, man, you know? Um, it's kind of just like, ah, uh, yes, but no. And the yes is because Jesus is a king, right? He is a king. He's the king, but he's not the king in the sense that Pilate thinks that he is. Pilate's idea of a king is someone that usurps power and authority, that that pushes down the weak to become strong. That's Pilate's idea of a king, someone kind of like Caesar, right? But Jesus is a different kind of king. So what Jesus is saying is, yeah, I'm a king, but I'm not the kind of king that you think, and guess what? My kingdom isn't here, it's somewhere else. Now, why is Pilate asking that specific question? He's not asking him, Do you claim to be God? He doesn't care about that. That was what the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders, were concerned about. Okay, they care about the theology aspect. Are you claiming to be God? Pilate doesn't care if he claims to be God. He could claim to be the Easter Bunny. He doesn't care. Pilate's a politician, okay? He's a governor. He cares about one thing, and that is, is this guy going to be an issue for me? Is this guy going to be an issue for me? So in Pilate's question, when he says, are you the king of the Jews, what he's really asking is, are you going to come in and to cause an insurrection, and to cause a rebellion, and to cause problems. Now, the Jewish idea of Messiah 
was not what we now know of Messiah. It was that Messiah was going to come into the scene, a Davidic-like type character, and he was going to take out whatever government was ruling over at that time, and it was going to be a strong warrior. Okay? So Pilate knows that, and what he's asking is, are you the Messiah? Are you going to come in here and cause problems for me? Are you going to come in here and start a war and fight against Rome and give me issues? That's what he's really concerned about. It's a political question, and, and that's, that's all that he really wants to know. Then, verse 3, the chief priests stepping in and butting in to this conversation, adamant to see Jesus crucified and killed, Accuse him of many things. And what are they accusing Jesus of? What are their accusations? Well, uh, the book of Luke, in this same account, in the book of Luke, sorry, in verse 20 through 2 says, they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So here's the false accusations that they're giving. They're basically saying that he's lying to the nation, misleading them, misguiding them. Uh, he's, uh, they're accusing Jesus of forbidding them to give taxes. Is that true? <laughs> what did Jesus say? Give to Caesar what is Caesar. So these are lies. These are not true. And then saying that he himself is Christ a king. Jesus did say he was a king, but he said, my kingdom is not here. Okay, in other words, I'm not trying to come in and rule and reign here. Okay, my rule is somewhere else. So these were all lies. These were all false accusations that the Sanhedrin, that the religious leaders are piling against Jesus to Pilate. And Jesus' response to this, look at verse 4. Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many changes they br- or charges they bring against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Jesus doesn't say a word. He's completely silent, which Pilate just really doesn't get, right? He doesn't understand that because Pilate thinks that a king should defend himself. Pilate thinks in in terms of strength and and, and in terms of of usurping his authority over people. So he says, why don't you defend yourself? Why Why don't you tell these guys that they're lying? I think Pilate obviously knew that these guys were full of it. He knew that their accusations were not true. He knew that Jesus was innocent. And he says, why don't you defend yourself? He's amazed by Jesus' silence. Well, why is Jesus quiet? Why isn't he saying something? Two reasons, if you're taking notes. The first reason is just simply that he's not trying to get off the hook. (laughs) Jesus is not trying to get out of this trial. He wants to go to the cross. He knows that he has to go to the cross. That's the Father's will. That's the Father's plan. The second reason is to fulfill prophecy. Is that ringing a bell for you guys at all? Isaiah 53, okay? About six or seven hundred years before this is even happening, Isaiah pens prophetically and says this about Jesus. He says, he was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet what? He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So Isaiah is saying that he, he's not going to open his mouth because he's a lamb before the shears. That's the beautiful thing about Jesus is he's the lion and he's the lamb, right? He's going to come back, Revelation tells us, he's going to come back as what? As the lion of the tribe of Judah and he's going to conquer and he's going to rule. But in this case, Jesus has chosen because of his choice to become a lamb. And before Pilate, he does not open his mouth. He's like a lamb. He's silent before his shears. And Pilate can't believe it. He's amazed. 
And I think at this point, Pilate realizes this is not an ordinary guy that we're dealing with. This is not just another typical person that's causing problems in the city. This is something special. This is someone special. And I believe in that moment, Pilate knew. Pilate knew. Maybe he didn't know everything, but he knew. Something about this guy is unique. Look at verse 6. Now, at the feast, he used, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. So apparently there's some kind of tradition that, uh, that, that Pilate would release a prisoner okay, for the Jews, whoever they wanted. He would release one prisoner during feast times. Verse 7. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Bar-Abbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate, to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Okay, so I think Pilate kind of sees this as his out. Okay, he knows he's not supposed to be putting Jesus to death. He knows that he's innocent. He knows that it's wrong. And he also wants to please the people. So I think, firstly, he sees this as a way to, to get out of these. He says, I'll, I'll pull this horrible man up, this man that's done horrible, atrocious things, and surely the crowd will pick Jesus to be set free. Then I can wash my hands of this thing. I don't have to worry about crucifying someone that's innocent. Barabbas gets his, what he deserves, and everything will be fine. It's a political move. But it kind of backfires on him because the crowd doesn't do what he expects. Now, who is this guy, Barabbas? Who is this guy? Uh, All we know about him, really, is that he was an insurrectionist. He was a a terrorist, essentially. He was a murderer. He was a bad guy. He was someone that hated the Roman government and that would do anything, whether it was murder or lie or cheat or steal or do anything that it took to overthrow the Roman government. He was a guy that was in chains, in prison for a reason, and he was there and deserved to be there. That's all we really know about him. Verse 11 says, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd. Okay, they're out there getting people fired up to yell Barabbas' name rather than Jesus's. The chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? He said, okay, if you want me to let go Barabbas, then what do we do with this guy? What do we do with Jesus? Now listen to this just burst out of everyone. They cry out, well, probably without even thinking about it. They just cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. <laughs> Maybe we lose track a little bit of what that word means. But this is the most brutal and probably the most brutal and violent way that someone could die. This crowd, this crowd is so fixed on violence. They're bloodthirsty. They want to see Jesus. Rather than the guy who deserves it, they want to see Jesus go be crucified. They yell it out passionately. In verse 14, Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? Pilate doesn't understand. They shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So he beats him, and then he sends him to the cross. So when I first read that, okay, um, and I was just thinking through what I'm going to share with you guys and and stuff, the first thing that pops into my head is why? (laughs) Why does this crowd want him dead? Why? 
I mean, I get that the, the Sanhedrin are out there and they're, they're sort of you know, riling him up and turning him into this mob type thing, but why do they want Jesus dead so bad? How are these people so capable of such bloodlust? How do they want a guy that has done nothing but good? that has healed and has preached life and has reached out to people that were hurting and done so many good things, how could a mob, a crowd, want to see him punished in the most brutal and horrific way possible? How are these people capable of wanting that? I was thinking about that. Why is that? Because there's a a reality that each of us have to face. And, And as Christians, at least we know where to file it. There's a reality each of us have to face, and that is that the depths of depravity and sin and wickedness that is within us goes far beyond what we even understand. Did you guys know that? Of course you do. But did you guys know that like literally 60 years ago, 70 years ago, something like that, not that long ago, six million Jews were murdered. (laughs) Can you even wrap your head around that number? Six million Jews. Now, one over a million of those were children. Little children were murdered because of the wickedness of men's heart, because of the sinfulness of men's heart. Now, it wasn't that long ago. What do you do with that? What do you file that? I used to work in, in retail, and I, when I was working one night with a, with a non-believer, and he, he came up to me and asked me, he's like, hey, man, can I talk to you? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And he's just like, this was during the Sandy Hook thing. Remember that? When, when this, uh, this teenager just blew away, little kids, and no one really understood why or how we could do that or how, we could be possible, how it could be possible for him to do that. And he just said, hey, man, what, <laughs> how, you know, you read the Bible, and you seem like you, you have some, some insight on things, and he's just like, why, why did this kid do that? I don't understand. So I kind of proceeded to tell him, I said, look, man, there's a condition that, that you have, that I have, that we all have, that, that most people in the world don't believe and they don't know. It's a condition, it's a nature, it's a sinful nature, and it's been passed down from you from generation to generation to generation, all the way back to our father, Adam. It's called original sin. And that condition is so deep, it's buried so far down in the depths of your heart that you cannot find it, you cannot change it, you cannot wish it away. No psychologist, no doctor, no counselor can reach deep enough into your mind or your heart to be able to extract this condition. It's called sin. It's the condition of man. And because of that condition, man is capable of such wickedness, things that we cannot dream and fathom that people would do what they do, and it happens every day. Just flip the news on. It's the condition of man. And this crowd is the perfect illustration of this. This crowd that most likely days before were laying down palm branches and saying, Hosanna, come, Jesus, is now saying, crucify him because of a sinful nature. It's almost as though, maybe you guys can relate with this because all of us have had to deal with this. Things that we do and we don't want to do. Things that we engage in and we know that they're wrong. We know that they're false. Why do we yell Barabbas when we know that it's him that we need? Why do we choose the world when we know that it's Jesus that we want? When we know that it's Jesus that's right? 
Paul says it's like I'm two men. I'm an old man and a, and a new man, and they war with each other, and, and my old self wants these things that I know are bad and I know that are wrong, and, and my new man wants Jesus, and they war constantly. It's something we all deal with. It's as though we have chains over our shoulders that are holding us and, and keeping us from being able to do what we know is right, what we know is good for us. And this crowd is illustrating this. We want Barabbas. Why? Pilate, even Pilate says, why do you want Barabbas? This guy's innocent. And you want to see that guy suffer more torment than any human can. Why? <laughs> because of the chains of their sinfulness. Because buried deep in their heart is a sinful nature that cannot be affected and cannot be changed by any earthly means. And then there's Pilate, okay? Let's talk about Pilate. He knows. In verse 10, it says specifically that he perceived that the Sanhedrin only wanted him dead out of envy. So Pilate gets it. Okay, he knows that these guys, these religious leaders, are only interested in killing Jesus because he's stepping in on their religious pride. He's getting in the way of what they want, and that's affirmation, and that's power, and that's pride. And Pilate knows it. And guess what? He has the power to step in and say, you know what? This guy's innocent. Go free. But yet he doesn't. Why? Why doesn't he do it? Because he's got chains. On him. And those chains are a little different, but they're the same in a sense. He has the chains that he cares so much about what people think about him. He's so concerned for his position. He's so concerned that these people are going to uprise and be upset with him if he chooses not to, to, to go with what they're, they're, they're chanting and what they're asking for. That he's bound by other people's opinions. He's bound by what, by what might happen to him, and he chooses to do what's wrong even though he knows that it's wrong. He's bound. He has chains. Can anyone relate with that? I mean, how many times have we had a moment where we knew something was wrong, <laughs> and we wanted so badly to do what was right, and we did what was wrong anyways? It's because we have chains on us. And then there's the third character, the most interesting one, Barabbas. He's standing there with chains, too. They're not spiritual chains. They're physical chains. I want you to put yourself in the, in the shoes of this guy for a second. And he, he's back tucked in a dungeon somewhere. He knows he's busted. He knows he's caught. He knows how Rome deals with people that um, have uprising and that, that murder. And he knows how Rome deals with people that, that uh, rebel against their government. And he's sitting in chains and irons in a dark dungeon somewhere. He knows that he's, he's going to get killed. He knows he's probably going to get crucified. He knows he's probably going to be made a mockery of. He knows that, that he's going to be made uh, uh, an illustration of what happens when you rebel against Rome. He's hopeless. And he's in chains. And he's basically as good as dead. And he knows it. And he's thinking about this. And then a matter of minutes go by and all of a sudden his his door flings open and they pull him out and he's in front of thousands of people. And all of a sudden he sees a guy over there in chains as well, beaten and marred and stricken and spitting on. And he sees Pilate and Pilate says, which one do you want, Barabbas or Jesus? And for a minute, Barabbas goes, I have, maybe I have a chance. <laughs> maybe I have a chance here. 
and the crowd yells his name. And then the guards come over and they take his chains off of his body. And Pilate just, I'm sorry, and, and Barabbas just went from having no hope, from being dead, from knowing that, that his, 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 his end was imminent, to all of a sudden being free. And he doesn't know why. And you, you can kind of even imagine him sort of being a prideful guy, kind of pounding his chest saying, yeah, I'm the man. Everybody loves me. These guys want me free. What's up? Can't take me, Rome. I'm going back to do more. And little does he know that the only reason that he was set free was because another man had to go to the cross. He has no idea. Guys, I can't think of a better picture of the gospel than that. I can't think of a better person to illustrate my condition apart from Jesus than Barabbas. Held by chains, condemned to die, and not because of something that was miscounted against me, but because I deserve it. <laughs> because I've, I've done so much wrong that I know my end should be death. I deserve death. And I'm covered in chains and I can't get out. And then all of a sudden, this man, who doesn't deserve it, goes to the cross and I go free and I don't even understand why. <laughs> That's the gospel. Jesus took the place of Barabbas. Do you know that? If Jesus would not have come to Pilate that morning and had the mob cheer Barabbas' name, if Jesus wouldn't have entered into the picture, he would have died. Jesus was the difference maker. Jesus was the thing that set him free. Because that's us. We are Barabbas. That's us. We're in prison, we're enchained, we, 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 we deserve the punishment that we're going to get. And Jesus comes in, the perfect and pure and spotless lamb not deserving anything, and he takes it for us. He takes our garbage and gives us his righteousness. We are Barabbas, that's awesome. Listen to Romans 5, 8 through 11. But God shows his love for us. Listen, and that while we were still sinners, you could read it like this, but God shows his love for us that while we were still Barabbas, while we, you and I, were Barabbas, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies... Enemies with who? Enemies with God. We were reconciled to God by death of his son. Much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What happened right there, that transaction, here goes Barabbas, free. Here goes Jesus to the cross. Barabbas' freedom granted by Jesus. That's a picture of what Jesus did for all of us. We get to go free, deserving death, he goes to the cross, deserving freedom. We get our chains taken off. He gets them put on. So the reality is, Barabbas also represented, with his physical chains, the chains, as I said, that the crowd had, the spiritual chains, bound by the sinful nature, right? Bound by this, this overwhelming bloodlust and want to do something wrong. Just like Pilate, who can't, can't do what's right even though he knows it's right. He still chooses what's wrong. He's bound by these chains. And Jesus knows in the middle of it with his wisdom and his all, he, he understands all things. He knows that if I don't go to the cross, Barabbas doesn't go free. 
I don't go to the cross, those chains will never be removed. This crowd will never be able to love me in the way that they could. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. The righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, Barabbas. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. I'll close with this. The crown jewel of this for me, this is so cool. The crown jewel of this whole thing is Barabbas' name. You're like, Sam, you're saying that's so funny. The reason that it's Barabbas, because his name means this, literally. His name means Bar, okay, which is son, okay? Simon, Bar Jonah, son of Jonah. Bar, Abbas, Abba, father. His son means son of the father. 2 Corinthians 6.18, it says, And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So amazing. Not only did Jesus purchase our freedom, let us go free, but he's called us sons. And Barabbas is a son of God. Church history tells us, I don't know how true it is, but I hope it is. Church history tells us that he got saved, that he became a follower of Jesus. And had not Christ stepped in and taken on his chains and set him free, he would not have become, he would not have become a son of the Father truly. Not just a son of the Father with that name, but a real and a true son of the Father. And you and I, guys, listen, you and I are sons and daughters of a Father, a Heavenly Father, because Jesus took off our chains, placed him on himself. So there's hope in this, okay? There's hope in this. And when we look at things that happen in the world that are discouraging, that, that reveal and show the, the wickedness and sinfulness of men, and when we see ourselves engage in things that how could we possibly do that and be capable of that, I want you to remember who takes your chains off. The only way. Barabbas could not save himself. It was impossible. You cannot save yourself. Jesus has to do it. He's the only one that can lift those chains. He's the only one that can reach into the depths of your heart and take away that sinful nature. And you know how he does it? He gives you a new heart. He says, I can't use that anymore. I can't use that one anymore. I'm giving you a new one, a new heart. You're reborn. Jesus lifts those chains, and he says that his yoke is easy. His burden is light. Kind of had a new meaning to that a little bit. I always thought about that. You know, Jesus is a carpenter. That's pretty cool. I mean, he, he makes yokes that fit us. But you know what this text makes me think? His yoke is easy and his burden is light because he carries it himself. Have you thought about that? It's not like he has a light yoke that he puts on you. He says, no, it's heavy, but I'm gonna bear it for, I'm gonna bear it for you. Barabbas, you can't, you can't save yourself You can't take your chains off. You're going to be crucified. But you know what? My yoke is easy and my burden is light because I will take that yoke on myself. And I will go to the cross myself. And that's the good news. That's the gospel. That's the good news tonight. Amen? Would you guys stand with me real quick? So Father, we just uh, thank you for your word. We thank you for how life-changing it is. God, I pray that we never get tired of hearing that. Lord, sometimes when I hear messages like this, I, I kind of just go, yeah, I know that. I get that. But Lord, I, I just pray that wouldn't be so tonight. I pray that, Father, uh, 
Heritage Christian Fellowship would be a church that is so ecstatic and so excited about the simplicity and the complexity of your grace that you took our place, that you gave us your righteousness and you took our garbage. I don't understand it, Lord. So Father, as we go tonight, we go home and tuck our kids in or go to bed and try to get rest, I just pray that tonight, Lord, that we would feel free, not because you've given us a light yoke, because we know that's not true, but because you've carried it for us. That you took our chains on yourself, Lord. Thank you for that tonight, God. We just love you so much. And we pray that in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Okay, guys, enjoy your evening. Thanks for coming out.